everybody, and welcome to the Death of Death podcast, where we proclaim Christ's victory over sin, death, and everything else. I'm your host, as always, Nick Stewart. Last week, uh, you may have noticed that uh, my eyes were red and puffy, and I was just kind of red and weird looking through the whole episode. Well, I cut something out of last week's episode. Um... So, kind of a praise report, kind of a prayer request. I'm going to kind of lay it all out here. I was giving an update. um, Good friend of the show, Trevor Wright, uh, his um, daughter, I I think she's about six months old now. Should have checked on that before I started filming. Um, she w- went to the hospital to get a bunch of tests done because uh, her p- pediatrician was concerned about something. And they did an EEG and concluded that she had something called Otahara syndrome, which, uh, you know, is like an infant epilepsy. Uh, the EEG said that she was having lots of seizures and uh it you know it's a condition with a pretty short lifespan and stuff so they gave this update i read it on the show and um weirdly my allergies kicked up right around the time i was reading it um it appeared as though i was crying uh i don't cry but um So that's why I I looked a little weird. The reason I took it out of last week's episode was because while I was editing that episode, Trevor had another update um, about Jane. She had another EEG that showed nothing. It was totally clear. Uh, I want to be cautiously optimistic. I want to say this is a really good sign. We don't know, you know, I I haven't talked to Trevor in a while, so I don't know, you know, the specifics, but, uh, you know, looks pretty good. Like maybe that was a false diagnosis. Um, I don't really know where we stand with all that, but that's the last update I heard. So I was able to joyfully take that part of the episode out and not present it to you. Uh, (laughs) So I'm happy about that. You know, we want to be you know, cautiously optimistic. We're, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I think there's another EEG in a few weeks to kind of confirm things. But, um, I know a lot of people were praying for her and, uh, for Trevor and Cheryl as well. So just wanted to give a quick update. We've been talking about Trevor a lot. Uh, we've had his GoFundMe in the show notes every week and, uh, almost entirely funded now almost uh up to 50 grand last time i checked it was like 45 so doing really well um obviously there's more medical bills now with jane than just the cancer treatments that trevor was already getting so just they're just getting hit with a lot of stuff right now and they could use your prayers and your donations so keep that going if you've been giving um so happy to give that update i i obviously you know i'm hoping that uh, that was a false diagnosis and that all of her EEGs are, are clear from this point on. Um, but I wanted to, uh, explain why my, uh, allergies had, uh, kicked up last week and why I looked so weird. So, uh, happy to announce that. Well, what we're going to talk about today is one of my favorite topics, post-millennialism. Um, 
something, you know, it's a big part of the show. It was one of the sides of the death of death hexagon that we talked about uh, like 20 episodes ago. And, uh, you know, it's something we don't really talk about too much here on the show, but uh, read a book, as I'm prone to do, uh, Victory in Jesus by Greg Bonson, a whole book about post-millennialism. And uh, I just wanted to talk about not only some stuff I got out of the book, but um, just some stuff in general. And, uh, you know, it's been a while since we talked about post-millennialism, so we might as well um, you know, cover a little bit of it. Um, I feel like I, I throw that word around a lot without necessarily explaining, you know, exactly what it means. Uh, basically there are three views of, um, the end times, like three main views, and it all kind of has to do with, um, when Jesus returns in the second coming in relation to the millennium. And so pre-millennialism is obviously that he comes back before the millennium. Amillennialism is that he, um, you know, there isn't a literal millennium, um, but, you know, more of a spiritual fulfillment of those things. Um, And post-millennialism is that he comes back after the millennium. Now, I remember... um, all I had ever been taught was dispensationalism, um, you know, for my first six or seven years of being a Christian. So when I first started looking into other eschatological views, um, they all sounded crazy, except for pre-mill. Um, but the one that sounded craziest was post-mill, because there was this weird aspect to it where, um, you know, the there was this weird, like, optimistic aspect to it and I think that can be misunderstood a lot so we we're probably going to talk about that a little bit um one thing basically I want to kind of give a short pitch you know for it um kind of explain why it's not that crazy uh to say post-millennialism um not only the optimistic side of it but also the idea that we're in the millennium now. I know for anyone who's not familiar with these things, like that it sounds like the craziest thing you've ever heard. Um, I've got some verses to talk about. I think when I'm done kind of going through this, it will seem less crazy to you if you're on the fence. Um, but obviously, if you're if you're closed-minded to this, then I, I don't think there's much I can say to uh, change your mind. So um, one thing I want to say... This was one of the cooler things I, I pulled out of the book. Is uh, he he lauded premillennialism uh, and amillennialism for different aspects, and one of the things that he said was a strength. He said that that both of those views had one main strength, and the main strength of amillennialism was that they understand the timing of things very well. So they understand that there's one resurrection um, of the just and the wicked. Uh, There is not, you know, like two, like one resurrection at the second coming, you know, at the beginning of the millennium and then another resurrection at the end and like all this weirdness and like three different judgments. Um, They understand, you know, kind of that there's one judgment, there's one... uh, you know, resurrection, 
there's one return of Christ, all this. So they've got a really good um, handle on the timing of things. Uh, he lauds premillennialism for um, the fact that there is a literal millennium in that system, which means there are literal fulfillments to all of these Old Testament promises that we get about a time of peace and prosperity and the kingdom of God. And so he said the, the cool thing about post-millennialism is that it basically has both of these strengths. So it has the timing of amillennialism with the, the one return of Christ, the one judgment, the one resurrection. It has all the timing and, and all that good stuff. Uh, but it also has the strength of premillennialism, which is that there is a literal millennium that uh, has literal fulfillments of uh, these, you know, kind of uh, peace promises of, of the Old Testament. And he said that, you know, amillennialism typically... Uh, or yeah, maybe not always, but uh, typically interprets those things in light of like the intermediate state or, um, you know, a spiritual aspect for believers, you know, like their, their resurrection is, you know, when they're regenerated, they're brought from spiritual death to life. And so that's their resurrection, stuff like that. Now, some of that gets into like full preterism and we don't have time to sort through all that, nor do I have the mental dexterity to sort through all that. But um, I thought it was cool that he kind of pointed out that post-mill has kind of the the strengths of both of the other views, like the best strengths of both of them. Um, so how do I go about convincing you that uh, we are in the millennium and and Jesus returns at the end of the millennium? Well... First of all, uh, is it literally a thousand years? Did it already end? Has it not begun? What What's the deal? Um, I believe there is a small number of post-millennialists that do believe in a um, literal thousand years that are still in the future and that Christ will return at the end of that. Although generally the most common interpretation of these things uh, both in Amil and post-mill, I believe, is that uh, the millennium begins at uh, Christ's first coming and ends at his second coming. So um, it is not a literal thousand years that ended in 1000 AD or that began in 1000 AD and it's almost over or that it hasn't begun yet. Um it is uh, a thousand years, just an image for a really long time, and um, we are in the midst of that really long time. So, a um, couple things I can point to that um, kind of can bear this out, because typically if you've only heard the dispensational side, you've got a certain image in your head about these concepts that make all of this sound pretty crazy to believe that it's going on now. Um I think that's I think that's all I can really say. Um, Matthew twelve is a big one for this. Um, I'm just going to read this whole passage and then we can talk a little bit about it. Um, this is Matthew twelve twenty two through twenty nine. Uh, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him. That's Jesus healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? 
But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder, plunder, his, plunder, plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So two big things to uh, point out there. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, which I think as Christians we would all agree that Jesus casts out demons by the Spirit of God, uh, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now obviously the uh, you know the New Testament is teeming with uh, examples of, of Jesus and John and people saying that the kingdom of God is upon you or it's here it's arrived um so does that mean that it's kind of here but it's really going to be like another two or three thousand years before it you know <laughs> before it really is like fully here or is it here um and then the other thing that's really important is how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and now who is the strong man? The strong man is Satan. So the image that Jesus is giving us is that he has bound Satan and is plundering his house, which is pretty cool. Um, but where this matters for our millennium conversation is Revelation 20. Um, Revelation 20, the first three verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. That's important. We're going to get back to that until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, Ah, coffee, good. It's good coffee. Um, it's a little cold, but it's good. Um, so, uh, in the in the millennium, this is the text where we get the idea of the millennium, the thousand years. In this text, it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years. In Matthew twelve, Jesus says, "The kingdom is upon you, and I have bound Satan." So. I don't know. There's something there. I think <laughs> sounds like the call's coming from inside the house on that one. Um, you know, so it, it, it's weird. I think we're going to talk about Satan a little later. Um, but I do want to kind of say up front, like you can tell um, my friend Seth Hawney taught me this about Revelation. You can tell what something is by what it does. And so you can tell what the binding of Satan does or what it is by what it accomplishes or what it does. And so um, 
we see in a thousand years of Satan being bound, he might not deceive the nations any longer. So that's the nature of his binding. We'll get to that a little later, but you know, that doesn't mean that he's immobilized. It doesn't mean that he's non-existent or that he's locked up in hell right now. It just means that he's not deceiving the nations. So, um, yeah. So the next thing I want to bring out is, uh, Acts 2, 29 through 33. This is David speaking. Um, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So it's Pentecost. Uh, Peter is talking about the Davidic kingdom, and that's a big part of premillennialism, is that there's going to be a restored Davidic kingdom, kingdom of David. Um, and one of the hangups in premillennialism, specifically dispensationalism, is that um, this cannot be the millennium because Jesus is not literally reigning on David's throne, and that's a big part of the kingdom. That's a big part of these, you know, Old Testament peace promises is that uh, a descendant of David will be reigning on his throne, or David himself. I think it's pretty easy to you know, interpret that as Jesus being the better David. Um, so, but what did we see here in Acts 2? Well, we see Peter saying that the Davidic kingdom is fulfilled in the the resurrection and ascension of Christ. You know, um, uh, do, 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 do God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, uh, yada, yada. This Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we are all witnesses, being exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father. So uh, Peter sees the Davidic kingdom as happening right there in the first century when Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's a big part of uh, the millennium as well, is Jesus reigning over the earth. How would you argue that Jesus is reigning over the earth right now. Um, well, I think we're going to get to that. Uh, I think that's actually my next point, but, um, first Corinthians 15, we've talked about that on the show before, uh, that actually says, um, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he's sitting at the right hand of the father. That's clear. He is reigning over his kingdom and uh, part of that reign is putting his enemies under his feet. It, it's not something that's uh, accomplished and then he reigns. It's something that accomplished, is accomplished in his reign. So the fact that not the entire earth is subject to Christ yet, although in a, in a sense it is, but not that every world leader or every person is subject to Christ, that's not proof that he's not reigning. 
that's proof that his reign is in um, progress right now. Um, and then as far as the kingdom, this idea that um, Jesus is going to return and then he hands the kingdom over to the father. Okay. That's what first Corinthians 15 says. We're going to read that in a, in a minute, but what I want you to realize is that if that's how it plays out, then the kingdom must be complete when he returns it to the father. Right? So is he going to return the kingdom to the father and then reign over it and perfect it and, and all that? No, that, that must be done when he hands it over. So let's read first Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Really love that verse. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Call that the death of death. Uh, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says... Um, okay, yeah, we can stop there. Uh, so... Do, 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 do. I'm sorry. So it's talking about Christ uh, resurrecting. He is the first fruits of resurrection. Uh, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ are resurrected. Okay. So when Christ returns, everyone, you know, his people are resurrected. Then comes the end. So he returns and then it's the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So Jesus comes back. It ends. The kingdom is complete. He's destroyed every rule, authority, and power. And he hands the kingdom over to God the Father. So how is it possible? Like, how could we argue that he then starts his reign and starts his kingdom for a thousand years and accomplishes all these things? It doesn't really work. Um, the timing just doesn't really work out. So um, we can see through the verses we've read just now, not only is uh, the kingdom here and Satan is bound and Christ is ruling over the earth, but uh, Peter considers this the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. And uh, the kingdom, when Jesus comes back, the kingdom is going to be complete and he will hand it over to the Father at the end. So um, that's quite a bit that we're able to pull out of just those, those passages that I read. Um, so I think now, if you were on the fence, if you had an open mind about it, I think you're seeing the logic of the millennium being right now a little bit more. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to take a while to get you fully on my side, but I think you're able to see kind of where I'm coming from on that a little easier. I don't think it sounds quite as crazy to you now as it did at the beginning, right? Uh, one, one big problem that people have with this is the, the nature of Satan. And how could you possibly believe that this is the millennium when all these crazy things are going on? Well, um, 
we need to talk about what Satan actually does. And now this is something I haven't fully figured out. I don't fully understand how it works, but I can say a few things for sure. Uh, you know, what I know for sure is that like my QAnon friends who believe that a satanic cabal is, is controlling the U.S. government, it would be very hard for them to accept that this is the millennial reign of Christ. But when you look at what Satan is and what he actually does, it's a little easier to see how these things can be taking place. So, if this, <laughs> I gotta stop doing that. So if this is the millennium, um, if the millennium begins at the first coming of Christ and, and Jesus bound Satan, uh, then what Revelation 20 says about the binding of Satan, that he will no longer deceive the nations, that means that up until then he was deceiving the nations. And I think that's pretty clear to see when we see that all throughout the Old Testament, God's people were a remnant, a faithful... I'm going to raise this up. There we go. I'm like hunching. I'm a hunchback the whole episode. Uh, a faithful remnant through the Old Testament. Um, you know, Israel, certain families, you know, it's a, it's a remnant of people. It's not the whole world following Jesus or following God, um, you know, part of the kingdom of God. So I think we can see Satan's work in, in um, deceiving the nations. I think, you know, the Old Testament talks about the nations a lot as these kind of just vague pagan empires um, and unbelievers. I think that's obvious. Um, now what do we see? Now after the first coming of Christ, now that we've been in the millennium for over 2,000 years, uh, what do we see now? Well... Christians are about one third of the world, about a third of the world, billions of Christians on this planet. Now, um, we can talk about, uh, obviously the legitimacy of those statistics and whether, you know, those are all, um, actual conversions. Of course, that's part of it. But, um, regardless, one third of the world identifies as Christian, so a significant portion of the world must legitimately be Christian as well, um, since they outrank any other religion that people claim. So, you know, that's, that's, that doesn't mean a whole lot. It's just something I like to point to to show, like, the kingdom has grown quite a bit in this time period. Like, we've gone from, you know, uh, a sect of Judaism to one-third of the world, in, in a couple thousand years. So if that doesn't look like this expansive kingdom growing on the earth, you know, I don't know what it is. And it's every nation. I mean, I, I think, I think there are Christians in every nation now, uh, at least every continent. And so it's not just a Jewish thing. It's not just a sect of, you know, a certain religion in a Middle Eastern country. Like it is represented over the entire earth. Christianity is everywhere. Um, so this idea that Satan is deceiving the nations isn't true in that sense anymore. God's people are not just a remnant. It is a massive amount of the earth that is following Jesus, or at least claiming to. Um, and then another thing to remember about uh, Satan. So, you know, uh, what I meant to say was that, like, that doesn't mean that Satan's not working. Doesn't mean that he's not doing things. 
just means that he's not successful, you know, just means that he's not deceiving the nations any longer. That's what the binding represents. Um, and you know, Jesus is, uh, you know, able to cast out demons in his first coming because Satan is bound. Um, so one of the things that's, it's hard to get around, um, in John 12, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Okay, well, how do you argue that we're in the millennial kingdom if if Satan is the ruler of this world? What's the sentence right before he calls Satan the ruler of this world? John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So, Satan might be ruler of this world, but it's a world that's uh, being judged. It's a it's a world that's crumbling. It's it's a world that uh, will not belong to him much longer, um, and in a sense, doesn't belong to him now even. Um, I I think the 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 complicated nature of talking about the world, um, and you know, you run into this with. Uh, conversations about like God loving the world and stuff too, because there's, there's many different ways that the the Bible talks about the world and what the Bible does a lot is refer to the world as kind of this ethical sphere. And what I mean by that is like, uh, John and in first John talks about, um, the world being the pride of life, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. I think, I think those are the three things I could look it up, but I don't want to keep you waiting. Uh, he, he defines it as three sinful things. And so if that is the definition of the world, then yeah, Jesus doesn't love the world. He doesn't, he didn't die for that. You know, he didn't, you know, whatever, uh, you can make different arguments if you're talking about people in the world or like people of every tribe and nation, then you can say that Jesus died for the world. You can say God loves the world. You can, you know, so it it depends on what you mean by the word world. And when it comes to uh, Satan's rule of the world, I think it's pretty obvious that he's ruling over the ethical sphere that John would refer to as the pride of life, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and that that's not the world that uh, God claims to love in John 3.16. I think it's pretty obvious that God doesn't love sin, so that's not you know the same sense of the word world. Uh, God's talking about people when he talks about that. He's not talking about ethical spheres that Satan is controlling. So um, not only that, but uh, you know the, the world is judged. That ethical sphere of the world is under judgment at Christ's first coming at the inauguration of the kingdom. And uh, when it's consummated, it'll be completely done away with. But uh, for now, it's judged and it's fleeting. And that's what, you know, Satan is is the prince of or, or the uh, ruler of. And so it's not as great a designation. It's not as prestigious a title when you look at it in that sense. Um, and then there are obviously countless ways in which Christ is ruling over the earth, the actual globe, the actual people, you know, uh, not just the, um, sinful aspects of the world. And so there's a lot of nuance to this. Um, so that's pretty much all I got today. Um, I just wanted to give a quick little, you know, if you've never heard these things, 
I wanted to explain how it's not crazy to say that we're in the millennium, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and what the role of Satan actually is and how it is possible for there to be so much evil in the world today without, uh, you know, uh, compromising the idea that we're in the millennium. And that's another thing. That's a good thing to, to point out is that um, post-millennialism is not this hopelessly optimistic thing that says there will be no evil like like i can't believe in a satanic cabal running the u.s government because i believe we're in the millennium it's like no i don't believe in it for other reasons but uh regardless it's not that it's like that could happen that could happen because it's not like you know there's just going to be this constant you know uh optimistic rise up i think over time we see that but i think you know there could be a slope there could be a dip in the, you know, the progress that's made in the world. But um, when you look at where we are now compared to where we were 2000 years ago, uh, almost everyone on the planet owns a Bible. One third of the world calls themselves Christians. Um, you know, if you consider infant death, uh, I, I would argue that most of humanity is saved and most of humanity uh, you know, we'll be with God in eternity. Um, you know, I don't know. It looks, it looks pretty optimistic from that angle. Um, you know, violence and, and death and, and poverty are at all time lows in the world. And, you know, people like to separate those things from the kingdom of God because we're afraid of being prosperity preachers. And so am I, but, uh, the reality is that the old Testament has a lot to say about prosperity and peace and, um, health and stuff in the millennial reign. And I don't want to ignore that stuff. I want to say that, you know, uh, if we are in the millennial kingdom, that stuff has come a long way. You know, we are, we are better off, uh, monetarily. I think I could say than at any other point in history, like every person is a little better off than they were 200 years ago, you know? And, um, even if you don't have as much money, and you have a much better life. If you've got a, an iPhone, you have a much better life than any millionaire did 200 years ago, I would argue. Um, you know more, you or you could know more, um, you know. So I don't know. You know, there's all these ways that you can look at the world and, and say that, you know, it's not really as bad as it seems. You know, if you take the news at their word, then, you know, things are pretty bad off. But, um, you know, it's not always quite that simple. And so, um, yeah, I've kind of rambled on enough here. I think, I think I've made a good case that uh, this could be the millennium and that Satan could be bound. And, um, yeah, is that it? Is that really all I have to say? It's all it's in my bullet points. So I guess we'll just sit here for a while and talk about stuff. How are things going with you? Things good? That's good. That's good. No, I love to hear it. I love to hear it. Well, uh, if you have not signed up for the Patreon, go over to patreon.com slash death of death. Give me $4 a month, less than a good cup of coffee to keep running the show uh, and to get some exclusive content. I know I'm super late on last month's uh, Patreon exclusive episode, but it's coming. It'll be here soon. I just had some other stuff going on uh, that I'll probably be talking about on the show soon. Um, so that's, that's all I got. Uh, go subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're watching on YouTube, you have no excuse to not subscribe right now. It's right under the screen. It's right, it's right there. It's there. 
just uh, just do it. And if you're listening, find the time to go subscribe to the YouTube channel if you can find it, because it uh, it'll help grow the show and help make it more um, visible. If you have trouble finding it, which I realize people are having trouble finding it on YouTube because we're not very popular, so it's not high in the search results. If you go to deathofdeath.net, I post the YouTube video every week of the most recent episode. It's always up there. It's always available um, on the homepage, so you can go and you can subscribe through that YouTube link. And that's all I've got. So be praying for Trevor and Cheryl and baby Jane Ridley. And, uh, And I will talk to you next week. I love you. Talk to you next week, everybody.